0: Support support. Support for this podcast
1: is brought to you by
0: the, the Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively.
2: Just thinking about like you say in that art and the craft aspect of it, you know, somebody it could be the same exact plate of food. And they come out and they set it down and explain what it is or just say, like, here's X, right? That's great. They like drop it down. All of a sudden that food's gonna taste bad.
0: Hello, you're listening to My Startup Journey, a show that highlights the business and individual stories of innovators, educators, and Kellogg students. In this episode, we speak with John Blanc and Austin Mills from Flavorit. This quarter, we're profiling Northwestern student entrepreneurs. We kick off the quarter with John Blanc and Austin Mills from Flavorite LLC. Both John and Austin were tired of restaurant marketers or anonymous online restaurant reviewers telling them where to get the best meals in Chicago. So they had a solution. Why not create a friend source app that recommends restaurants based on your friend's recommendations? In this episode, John and Austin share their passion for food, chance encounter, and business opportunity flavor it. We kick it off with John, a native Midwesterner with a marketing background, and Austin, an East Coaster with a television background. I'm John Blanc. I am the opposite of Austin. I've lived
2: in two spots pretty much my entire life. So, I grew up in the Quad Cities, which is right on the Iowa Illinois border, about three hours west of Chicago. And then I've been in Chicago now for the past nine years. So I grew up in Moline, Illinois. Uh, it's the headquarters of John Deere, if anybody's familiar with that. Massive company. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of tractors, a lot of farming. It's right on the river. It's not a small town. There's a decent amount of people there, but uh, it's still it's definitely smaller than Chicago.
3: In Austin, how about you? Where, where did you grow up? Um, so I really grew up all over the place. Right. Philly
1: was probably that's where most of my family's from. So I was there I think from when I was like 1 until 8. So it's one of the longer places I've ever lived. Um but state-wise, Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, DC, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, I've lived a, a, a bunch of places. And
3: any reason why you you moved around a lot when you were uh, um a my
1: dad uh honestly my dad wanted to move up. He worked in pharmaceuticals and it was, you know, a promotion and then a transfer and then a promotion and then a plant and, Change, so he just uh, kept kind of moving with that. Um, we did have a, a like a summer house in Northeast Pennsylvania, so that was sort of my the only steady place I've ever lived throughout my life. Um, so I went to college at the University of Richmond um, in Richmond, Virginia. Ghostfighters. That's right. Yeah, so I went to University of Richmond. I lived in Connecticut at the time, so sort of a a little bit of a change. And then um, after school. I lived in DC for like six months um, saved up some money did like a cross-country road trip with my buddy for like half a year um, and then came back to New York and ended up in advertising absolutely hated it um, I hated like the monotony of it and like the. I actually the thing I hated the most I think was if you asked me like what you're doing tomorrow at 1120 I'd be like, I know exactly what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. I'm eleven twenty, and that depressed me horribly. Um, always grew up loving TV, and as cliche as it was, I think you know some friends were like, "Well, you should just get into TV." Then, so I just tried. Um, had a new somebody at the Today Show that uh, put me in touch with uh, somebody at NBC, the local news. So started there, and then sort of the rest is history.
3: What's life in the,
1: in the news business kind of like? Um, well, it's changed a lot um, from when I started, um, sort of, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, and even, like, the, a lot of the early 2000s, um, there was a lot of money, i.e., like, in terms of budgets for stories, um, and you can kind of do whatever you wanted, and kind of get away with whatever you wanted, and... As we're seeing now, right? With yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Gosh, all that stuff. Mm.
0: Um,
1: And then it was like 2008, I want to say, when it really changed. Like, they fired 60% of the staff, and it basically became like no more professional crews. You had to learn how to shoot, you had to learn how to edit, you had to learn how to light. You kind of needed to know how to do everything. Um, So, I feel like news now is a lot of it's become more like young hungry versus, you know, the older experience. which I think is why it's worse in a quality standpoint, um, but it's really the only way you can do a
3: 24-hour news cycle. The power held by the big four has obviously diminished. Oh, yeah, big time. And now it's like any sort of news, I mean, even Twitter, you can sort of break news through there and some random dude can do it. Yeah, I remember when, if you had the scoop, that was a big deal, but now if you have the scoop... It's hard to do it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. exclusives are sort of a thing of the past. Yeah, And actually a lot of places air that they're exclusive and it's not really, they like tweak the word so it's like exclusive in daytime, exclusive in local. And it's like, no, that person's already talked eight different other places. Like it's not
2: really the same thing. Right. Or exclusive yeah. camera angle because this is it, where we're set up. But people up. try yeah. to get away it, it with that. they
0: would
1: be like, eh, I don't know about that, but sure.
2: The Twitter thing, you're talking the research, the craziest example that I've seen of that just from a personal standpoint is it was about a year ago was on the phone with somebody who was in seattle i was in chicago so we're halfway across the country from each other and you hear these like sirens going by and they were talking They're like yeah there's this big cloud of smoke i have no idea what's going on and like looked at the news and they couldn't figure it out and i'm here in chicago look at twitter it's like yeah where where are you at I'm like okay here's the address oh yeah there's a house fire around the corner and then like 30 minutes later it starts breaking on you see it like on yeah. news sites or whatever but because of Twitter and everybody that's just walking up and down the street, like I had photos and videos, people were like filming it live, this like crazy fire, and I from Chicago was able to figure that out quicker than the person who was two blocks away from it
3: in Seattle. It's just insane. That is crazy. That is crazy. John, what about, what about you? Where'd you go to school and then how did you arrive in, in Chicago?
2: Definitely. So I went to undergrad at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Um go Bulldogs for, instead of the spiders. You know, <laughs> nobody knows that though, right? Uh, I was supposed to go to the University of Illinois. I was uh, registered, had a roommate, had a room, books and everything a few weeks before school, went down for orientation. I'm like, I, I don't want to be here. This doesn't feel right. Ended up at Drake University, as so I said in Des Moines, and it was probably one of the best decisions I've made. I great school, some, like wonderful friends. Lots of politics, being the state capitol, you know, presidential debates were held, Cheslow Auditorium right on, on campus, campus, like, at Iowa caucuses, the Iowa State Fair, and you, know, you see every single politician come through there. So that was wonderful to be a part of. Um, but how I ended up in Chicago growing up my entire life, I wanted to live in Chicago. I just, like, always knew that this is the city that I wanted to come to. So post-college, ended up back in my hometown and worked for a year. Uh, for United Way, just doing fundraising, nonprofit stuff, um, managed a bunch of accounts, and after that year came up, decided I'm ready to get to Chicago and see what I can do up here. Let's start with you, Austin. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have an early childhood food memory? You know,
1: I actually don't know. Okay. I like, truthfully, don't know. I mean, I remember being a little bit more adventurous when I was younger, mm-hmm. and then I went into like middle school, high school, and it became very much. Like, just middle of the road. Mm-hmm. But I think it was probably New York that really, um, I guess, probably kick that in a bigger way. Um, I would do, like, a, I did a weekly dinner with my mom. They lived in Manhattan at the time. Um, and so it was always, like, no matter what it was, it was always try a new restaurant.
3: John, let's go to you. Mm-hmm. Do you have a food experience that was really formative in, in your... Yeah, so
2: definitely, uh, did a lot of cooking growing up, just was always just kind of interested in it, and you know, would like help out in the kitchen and do whatever, uh, eating out, dining, I was always that like ambitious eater, and I think that the biggest thing that it came from is growing up, it was always, no matter what was on your plate, I had to have a bite of everything, so like you just try it, and sooner or later, like very quickly you realize that there's like not that many things that taste bad out there. Everything's pretty darn good, except for olives. Oh, Olives are the delicious. Olives are you're, just, you're wrong. They're so good. Um, so a lot of that come to find out on my dad's side, there's like five or six chefs in the family, you know, all from like owning their own restaurants to like doing catering businesses, etc. So there is this like, I guess, lineage, lineage, heritage, a line of you know cooks in the family a little bit. Um, but then like my mom's the big big cook in the family so a lot of food there and then just yeah dining out as much as I can I love being out being in a restaurant it is one thing that no matter who you are you have to eat like food has to be consumed and you can connect with anybody on it so whether you're at the you know the pub your local pub across the street or you're around the world Sitting across the table with somebody who doesn't speak the language like when you're both eating the same food you're experiencing the same things and it's the connection that you don't experience mm-hmm. anyplace else I
3: thought that''s, that's a, just
2: that's amazing
3: right? I thought that's what made Bourdain yeah he was the man at that you know perfect
2: you could watch his shows and hear him describe food and talk about it and he wasn't describing just the food it's it gets back to kind of what Austin was talking about with some of those restaurants that he'd been to like the experiences that surround that, mm-hmm. the food is only part of your dining experience. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere has to be there. The people you're with are the people that you're not with. The, you know, the drinks that you're having, the, everything comes into it. And yeah, Bourdain did an amazing job of saying, you know, this is why you should eat here. And this is how it makes you feel. And you almost experience them, those restaurants with him through the television.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of, like, love for food bonded over that, there was a, um, a big thing in Chicago, which, if you have not experienced, is, like, the underground dining experience, which I haven't really found in other cities, Hmm. um, but it's a lot of chefs typically coming from very fancy restaurants, Charlie Trotter's, Alinea, Grace probably at this point, Mm -hmm. people that want to open up their own, um brick-and-mortar places but probably don't want a lot of investment
2: or just want to have fun or try out new thing. recipes just yeah. you know they have a lot of skill and they want to cook but they don't want to open a restaurant mm-hmm. or they don't have the means yet. currently yeah yeah, yeah. So it was basically like crowdfunding like you familiar with kickstarter indiegogo whatever underground dining clubs seem to kind of be that way
3: mm-hmm.
1: and basically yeah so the chefs then Uh, it's usually like what 6 to 12 people depending on it Where we met I think it was eight of us um, in the chef's family room and you know his fiance I think at the time um, was the front of house if you if you will and then Jake was you know three feet away cooking us a 14 course meal or 12 Mm -hmm. course meal in his kitchen Um, and so we both ended up there uh, as I said the day after Valentine's Day both with our significant others at the time Um, and we sort of
2: bonded over the fact I mean we talked and stuff throughout the meal but then realized we lived not that far from each other and I know it was only eight people but just by chance happened to be like sat across from each other it's a big communal table Mm -hmm. but you know you're just talking to the people that are right there with you and
1: so we were talking and then we decided to get a cab home together
2: so yeah, Basically, we, <laughs> it was like yeah, it was great. We'll split a cab. This was yeah. be wonderful. Would be Went outside, waited. I think it was like five minutes. I was like, all right, they got to be coming at some point. And I think roughly at the like seven, eight, nine minute mark, it was like, ah, oh, whatever. It was nice chatting with them. It's really good to know them. But it's gonna, late. We're gonna hop in a cab yeah. and leave. And like, you know, we live in the same neighborhood. Maybe we'll see each other. Maybe our paths will cross. Yeah. Maybe they won't. And that was the end of it. But strangely enough. My significant other at the time, we were chatting the next day or two days later, and I was like, man, it, that was a really good dinner. It's a bummer that we like one didn't split the cab home, two, you know, maybe didn't wait that long, but whatever, yeah. we had waited long enough. But three, like we didn't even like ask for a phone number or where, like yeah. specifically where they lived or anything. And I would say within an hour or two of having this conversation, I get an email from this underground supper club of just mm-hmm. like, yeah. hey, Austin, you know, he thought you guys were pretty cool. Is it okay if I give you your email address? Yeah, sure. It all kind of ended
0: up coming back together and connecting and working out. We shift our discussion to the essence of this episode, what makes a great meal. You'll hear the word experience mentioned several times throughout their answers, yet the food on the plate is rarely the main attraction. But first, Austin shares his take on the dining experience
1: the thing it's like people don't want to spend a lot of money or a lot of people don't want to spend a lot of money on food mm-hmm. but you're not really spending it on the food you're spending it on the experience It's like the same thing like you'll a lot of these people would in the same breath would do that but then you know tell you that they just spent 500 to go see a play mm-hmm. and it's like if you go to these like really and not even all the really high-end restaurants but the really high-end restaurants it's going to a show
2: mm-hmm.
1: like it's literally like art on a plate or, you know, whatever the experience is. I mean, really, if you go Alinea, then it really is a play. It's
2: a full, full, yeah, full show. I'm but you know, were what talking, I was going to say, you were saying just like dining experiences, and it yeah. piggybacks off of that a little bit. Um, yeah, like some of the best meals that I've had are at really high-end restaurants, like the like Alinea, Next, uh, but some of my favorite restaurants, and I would easily say Favorite spots are the ones that like, almost don't even have a name on them. I was in Vietnam early last year, and it was just you like walk down an alley and have the best bowl of pho you've ever had in your life. And it's just cooked in this tiny little pot, like a street cart mm. or whatever. It's absolutely amazing. And you, know, you like point at what you want because I don't speak the language, and it's rare that they like, speak English or whatnot. And it's just like it's absolutely amazing. Right? And uh, like some of my favorite spots, like fat rice in the city here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Favorite restaurant in the world, potentially, possibly, depending on my mood, but damn, it's good. Also and started as an underground dining. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. some of the first things that Abe and Adrian did at Fat Rice, and I was like sitting in their living room or spots that they rented out and they've grown it into this amazing. Well,
1: that was named St. Food & Wine, best restaurant in the country at one point. Just
2: won a James Beard Award, like, it's, it's great. And it is high-end food, the prices aren't crazy. Mm-hmm. You just like go in, have an amazing meal and connect with people, and it feels, it's that, you know, it's the connections. that comes back to that. Everybody's eating something similar and really enjoying it together.
3: What, what, I, what I think is really interesting about what both of you are really saying is, um, you can look at a Michelin guide, and figure out what's good, right? Mm-hmm. But what you're really saying, what both of you are really saying, is that there's more to it than just, whatever the just the food on your plate is, it's about the whole experience. Can you break it down on what you look for in a dining experience? Hmm.
2: On the most basic level, like, if, this is not a breakdown by any mm-hmm. any means, but it's, if I leave the restaurant and I'm thinking about coming back, like, that's a success. You know, you can have an amazing meal at places and never want to go back. It doesn't mean it was a bad meal, but it would just, like, it just was. There's so many other restaurants in the city or in the world mm-hmm. that you could go to mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those, like, yeah, it was good, but whatever um but yeah, like you're signing your check at the end of the meal and you're thinking like oh i have to tell this person about this restaurant because i know they'll love it yeah. i have family coming to town or a friend coming to town in a few weeks like i need to make a reservation to bring them in here and like kind of show off show off your city a little bit or show off this restaurant that you found it's that's the like the good feeling but just i guess breaking it down it's that combination of like good food it has to be all of these things like good food good atmosphere, good service. Because if any, any one of those three things is off, Mm -hmm. your meal's ruined.
1: Yeah, I think there's stuff, I mean, I think service is something that's often overlooked. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just like, you know, you only get really great service at a really great restaurant, which is silly to think about because I've even had bad meals that I'd be happy to come back because of the service. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they're really setting the mood, which is, in in part that is the atmosphere I guess in some sense I mean Mm -hmm. obviously the decor and everything plays into that too but if you just have a good time it's I mean I've been to the same restaurant and had bad service and good service and it's a whole different different kind of experience
3: you know you usually think of like that one dish but Mm -hmm. it's never about the people who greet you the people that put the plate on your on your table Mm mhm and that level of care that they put into mm-hmm. your, your experience. Like, there's a craft and there's an art to it, and I knew that it was important, but I often overlook that aspect of mm-hmm. dining.
2: Just thinking about, like you say, in that art and the craft aspect of it, you know, somebody, it can be the same exact plate of food, and they come out and they set it down and explain what it is, or just mm-hmm. say, like, here's X, right, that's great. They, like, drop it down, all of a sudden that food's gonna taste bad. Or you think about, like, the overeager waiter that's, con- every time you take a sip of water and, like, they're there to fill up your pitcher, like, that gets annoying. Mm-hmm. But when that waiter is, like, the perfect experience is when they come right when you need to order something. Like, they just know there's this, this, like, I don't know what, like, a, a spidey sense, right? <laughs> they're, they're coming and they know, like, oh, hey, they need a refill, so I'm going to be over there to do it. Or, like, oh, maybe they need some more food. They just know. But then they completely disappear. And that's... Using your work, as yeah, it's an art, it's a craft. And people who are really good at it can elevate bad food and people who are really bad at it can ruin a really good meal. Mm-hmm.
3: What's wrong with the industry of restaurant reviews? You get really good reviews from people who, who quote unquote know food mm. or you get it from people that,
0: yeah,
1: that you don't know. Yeah, you don't yeah. know.
2: Or yeah.
1: Everything, at least in my mind, when it comes to that type of stuff, is focused around the best. So you're going to have, in D.C., like you're going to have some Jose Andres restaurants, and you're going to have some of the Georgetown. like. But it really, most of those lists, because of the people that they're targeting, fail to understand that what we were talking about before, that all dining experiences aren't the three Michelin star meals. Um, whereas you rarely see like the top 50 right now and it includes like that hole in the wall down the street that actually has unbelievable food. Um, so I think you're kind of limiting yourself. There was a, an app that uh, launched, I think it was called like, not, not Spot, but it was, it was that. It was, you know, in Wicker Park, here are the 10 restaurants you go to. Mm-hmm. And there are the 10 re- restaurants you'll see on every single list ever. And they're great. But there's also a hundred other amazing experiences around here um that you find out through friends or through somebody who you know who you trust and almost everything else we do in life like we don't just randomly take strangers words for you know you're not going to stop somebody walking down the street that you've never met before and be like this restaurant like should i go because like that's not how you do you don't you make informed decisions before you do everything before you buy a car before you do like all those different types of things like you go test drive that you're not just going to like randomly be like, oh yeah, you know. Bill from Pittsburgh said, I have to have this car and you're gonna go spend all this money. You spend what how much? I mean, probably outside of sleeping, the most time in your life eating food <laughs> yeah. or whatever, like why trust somebody that you don't know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's like the biggest. But again, it's it's all that's out there right now. And then once you do that, it's you can't really walk it back you know so most people that review are either really really loved it or really really hated it there's less in the middle Mm -hmm. with that being said the average five star overall review like if you take all of them the average is a 4.3 which basically means every single place in the world is
2: amazing above average yes like quite a bit why isn't it two and a half like Like, like, average is that's where it should be But
1: that's the average. So basically, you know, you're trying to decipher, like, the best meal of your life or the worst meal of your life within one, like, percentage point. Like, it doesn't make any sense.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a big frustration that I have as well, going to what you were talking about there with, like, the top 10 restaurants or that top 50 list that you mentioned out of D.C. or something. That is one person's opinion. And now all of a sudden, those restaurants become, because more people go to it because they've read that list, more people go, and it's just that confirmation bias. So you just like continue to pull it in, continue to pull it in. Whereas this restaurant, that little small small hole in the wall place, will never have a chance of hitting that top fifty list because people didn't hear about it to begin with. So then fewer people go to it, and even fewer people talk about it because there's no recognition in the society that we live in with, um, like Instagram. Right, you're not gonna snap a photo of some restaurant that's not doesn't look amazing and you're not going to brag to your friends that you were at this little hole in the wall what we're hoping to do is kind of flatten all of that enable the small little restaurants the small little spots the big restaurants and the big spots as well to be on a level playing field and have the reviews coming from your friends, not from strangers. Have the reviews coming from your friends or trusted sources Mm -hmm. that you're interested in, that you've curated your follow list. You're getting the reviews from them, not from the marketing agency that flooded the restaurant's page with reviews. Or the 20 employees that are servers and wait staff that are flooding the page with reviews. Or Or negative reviews reviews from your competitors. competitors. Like that, it happens, and you're a brand new business that has three reviews. Two of them are bad because they're from the competitor down the street, and they're just fake. Like, well, that ruins the chances somebody sees that you have two one star reviews and one four star review. The chances of them walking through the
0: door, slim to none. When we come back, John and Austin translate their restaurant review solution into an app. You're listening to My Startup Journey. Hey, this is John from Flavorite. We're a mobile application that
3: helps
2: the 140-plus million Americans who dine out at least once a week avoid unreliable reviews by connecting them to those they trust most, their friends. If you'd like more information on our company or just have a question that you wanted to ask Austin or I, feel free to email me at info at I hope you enjoy this week's episode of My Startup
0: Journey. Earlier it highlighted why the disaggregated restaurant review world was in need of a better idea. So the pair met up over food at August Food and Wine restaurant. And when they try to track down the places they've eaten at, they stumble upon their solution. John picks up the story. Phones out, we we're trying to take
2: notes of like, "Oh no, I haven't even heard of that place yet. Tell me this about it." And we're, like type and stuff. And it slowly started, just evolved into this conversation of there has to be a better way to track where we've been and where we want to go. And that was just the basic root of it. Um, Mm -hmm. That meal ended two days later, I think. Austin sent me an email. The subject line was restaurant tracker app or something like that. And over the next few weeks, we just kind of bounced ideas back and forth, talking about you know, yeah, tracking restaurants would be really good. And then a massive frustration started to come out with services. You know, some of our biggest competitors like Yelp or you know, Foursquare, anything that's out there that relies on crowdsourced crowdsource. reviews. Um, the biggest thing that we focused in on is rejecting that idea of crowdsourced reviews and going towards friend source, friend, sourcing, friend source reviews. Because you don't need to read 10 or 20 reviews from a complete stranger yeah. That's talking about you know I'm giving it one star because the food was amazing but my company was bad like that doesn't re- really reflect on the restaurant when one review from like a really trusted friend is all all that needs all that you need right if I came to you and I said you have to go to fat rice you're gonna go you're probably not gonna distrust me um, and then it you know builds into the the idea that you know that taste preferences of your friends. So some of your friends like really high-end dining and some of your friends like bar food. And if you're in the mood for bar food, you don't want to read a review from somebody who likes high-end dining. You're going to go to your friend who can recommend a really good bar. So all of those ideas came together. Um, Fun little story. I had moved all the furniture out of my apartment, was doing some work, and just nothing was in it. And we ended up Back here, and I had a stub roll of paper. I worked in the printing industry for a while. So, a stub roll is when the roll of paper is too small to run. (laughs) Like, you have these massive rolls of paper, but at a certain point, they're too small to be able to efficiently run on a press. So, they take them off, and it's just you can take them home and, like, you know, draw on them, do whatever. And I had that, and just like paper ended up all over the apartment. We're just like laying on the floor, sketching ideas out. I feel like that was kind of the night that I was like, all right, this is. Actually this is something real. Like, this is something yeah, real. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about it now for a few weeks. We've got a lot of ideas. It keeps—it's that itch in the back of your brain. I'm like, hey, let's go for it. Let's see see what we can do. Mm-hmm.
3: And then, so you, you come up with this idea, and you're you're drawing and you're scribbling on your floors, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. How does that come in? How, how does that turn into the app? How did, what's the story behind that? What kind of resources did you need to 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 make that happen? So we took our, our floor
2: drawings and put it into a, a much more detailed business plan, a pitch deck, um, started doing a bunch of research because on development companies, app developers that are neither Austin or I have a coding background, there's no nothing there. Um, you know, built the app, built the service, one, because we wanted it ourselves. We figured this is a, a service that we'll use, mm-hmm. and I feel like a little part of it, at least definitely for me, it was a challenge to see if I could do it. You know, as a, like
1: Definitely a challenge.
2: Can, like, can we take this idea through execution and actually have a product in the marketplace? Can we take something that I have no coding background and actually build it out somehow? So anyways, back to what I was saying, we took all of those drawings, put it into a real serious business plan, did a bunch of research on developers, had a rough idea of how much it was going to cost. We had created, I think it was like 300 different PDF screenshots for, for all of the scenarios. For and
1: people and photos. And,
2: and then made them all clickable so on your phone you could have this app sitting there and you could show it to people and nothing was actually happening. But if you touch buttons, it, it you know, works like it. The first thing that we created is terrible. You look at it now and you're just like, yeah. wow, oh, that's ugly. how did anybody see this besides us in our head and be like, this is a great idea? Yeah. Just because I don't know how you can look past the design and stuff of it. Was, it was rough. But it yeah, took that business model, took the idea, took the mock up version of the app to a few people, um, got some investment from that, and then did. Probably another hundred hours of interviews, trying to find developers and research on different mm-hmm. companies that range from people in the states, in Chicago, in Uruguay, Uruguay, yeah. a lot of pla- like all over Europe. Talked to a bunch of different people, mm-hmm. whittled it down to I don't know, like three or four, had some more serious interviews with them, and then finally sent them on one a company here in Chicago that we were able to meet with face to face, and that was a big moment as well. I feel like giving over some of the control, even though we still had full control of how it was going to be developed, but I said, not having a coding background at all and having to say... Well,
1: it really became real at that
2: point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, here's our vision, here's what we want to have happen, sitting in a conference room, like, sketching stuff out and starting to see it, and, like, Mm -hmm. signing the contract with the developers, and that was the, you you keep hitting these different, like, inflection points of, you know, idea over dinner, emails back and forth. Drawing everything out, building a business model, mm-hmm. hiring developers, and six weeks later we had a working prototype.
3: From you making the the business uh, pitch deck mm-hmm. to choosing the developer, are we talking a six to eight month timeline, or was it much faster than that?
2: Faster than that, I would say. It was a lot quicker than that.
3: Yeah. So you were working nine to five, at least, and then what? I mean. Uh, a lot more than that. <laughs> how did you? How did, how did you how did, so, what were your your hours like? I mean, w- when you got off work, and then you, know, you you started working on this.
2: One thing that really helped, and then I'll answer your question too, is for the like three months we lived together. Because I, as I said, I was doing some work here, mm-hmm. so ended up having not, not having to. I did. <laughs> yeah. You know, Live down there, so it was nice. Like work would end. And we were just both at the same spot. Yeah. And it honestly, like, like, it got, it was exciting. Like, during the day, I was, you know, working on other stuff that was a lot of fun. It was interesting doing stuff. But come six o'clock, the end of the day, you know, like, close your computer for a little yeah. bit. We'd, like, grab dinner or whatever and just, like, talk back and forth a bunch and then just work for a couple more hours at night. But it didn't, I don't know, like, I never felt like it really felt like work. And just in addition to that, like, You know, going out to dinner. It would be, let's, you know, we have to work tonight, but let's pick a new spot and we'll go there for a few hours. Maybe some friends would come along and we'd be able to pick their brains over dinner and just, you know, just taking tons of notes and figuring like, yeah, let's actually tweak this, doing interviews with people over the phone who I know, you know, live East Coast, West Coast, that dine out a lot. Like, how would you use this app, all of those interviews, but still for the most part, it felt like connecting over food though, because we like have those calls during the dinner hour or whatnot, and like one person's eating, and still there's that common thread yeah. that that ran through it.
1: I mean, there definitely are challenges, I would say, from that standpoint, in so much that you're stuck time-wise. That was, I think, the biggest thing. That would be the only like downside, I would say, from that standpoint, is that like you had to work.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: certain things like all of a sudden it was like well you know like, can't we just jump on a call at noon it's like no can't do that like at work um, so like meeting with developers it was all like figuring out like do you think you can leave for like a half hour and like come and do this and stuff so it was a lot of figuring that out but at the same time it never really it never felt like it never felt like you were going from one job to the other
3: when you were developing this right you talk about the other social media websites so you're competing against the Yelps uh, um, probably, you know, Google has a mm-hmm. review platform. Mm-hmm. Was it strategic at all, or was it more like, you know, we don't really care how much money we make, we just want to, we want to get this thing out there because we think it's a good product?
2: the latter. Yeah. It, it was, in my opinion at least, it was not too much strategic of, you know, this is the direction Yelp is going, so we're going to go the opposite way. It mm-hmm. was Frustrations with the services that were out there, yeah. and how can we make them better? How can we improve them? Um, because the services, you know, the competitors that we have, it's you know I personally used them because that's what was there, not because I wanted to. There's nothing else there, so how can we build something that's better than what's out there to address the issues that we were running into?
3: When the app officially launches. Were you a little nervous, or were you just kind of like, I'm so proud that we did this, and...
1: Yeah. I mean, it's... it's, I think it was both, to be honest with you, in terms of, like, exciting. And, I mean, definitely an accomplishment from that standpoint. Like, it's something that I think we both felt proud about. Um, but in some sense, then it really becomes real, too, because it's like, you're spending this money, and it's, like, happening, and now it's, like, out there, and then it comes with it, like does people do people download it mm-hmm. don't they like all of a sudden does everything start coming back wow this is terrible yeah you start like,
2: getting that feedback you're Like, oh yeah. all right yeah we didn't think about that yeah. let's fix it let's go let's, let's yeah. change that yeah um, I mean it's definitely it's like uh I like that
1: with that in tv mm-hmm. type of thing it's like that same type of thing it's like that kind of nerve before you like launch a new episode or something like that yeah. and like the next day you're like Like refreshing because you want to see, like, the review that's like, yeah, this is either gonna work or it's not, type of thing. So, from that, it definitely becomes like once it's everything is real, I guess, to some sense, but then once it's like out in the public, it's like you can't take it back, really. Like, it's it's, for better or worse, it's there
2: to be able to take it to the level that we need to. We need to bring in secure more funding. Um, like any early stage business, cash flow is king if you have. You can have all the ideas in the world, but without the ability to execute them, and the ability to execute them in this world takes money. Um, so that would be our yeah, the biggest benchmark. The biggest biggest hurdle to get over is you know have have a few of these investor meetings, and get the ideas out there. Um, probably well definitely for me more nerve-wracking hearing feedback from them. Oh, yeah. You know, users download it and they say, oh, this would be nice, that would be nice, I don't like this. We can change a lot of that. Investors are gonna come in and they're looking at the numbers and stuff, and that's that's where your ideas either gonna
0: they're going to, you know, make it or break it. It's huge. We wish the Flavor team the best of luck as they progress on their journey. Once again, a special thanks to John Blanc and Austin Mills. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And until next time, this is Naruki Harai from My Startup Journey.
3: Well, I'm, just, I'm asking this question just to gauge where you're at at the culinary spectrum. So best meal you've had, period?
1: Best meal I've ever had was at Marea in New York City. Okay. Um, certainly not the best restaurant I've been to. I mean, it's a great restaurant. Michael White's a great chef. Um, but it was the overall experience. Like, And there's some stuff that you just can't duplicate. I mean, there was something going into that. It was like the perfect night, the perfect just like everything. Service, food was incredible. The wine pairings were like out of control. And they surprisingly gave us, so We, I think it was, 10 courses, and it was 10 wine pairings, and they gave us 10 full glasses of wine. Mm-hmm. Like, not just the little sips. So it was like... Maybe it was the best meal you've ever had. It was it's the good. first half that you it remember. Was, was it was good. good. It <laughs> was good. <laughs> um, but some of those wise are like experience, because then it's like you can't duplicate like an experience like schwa here mm-hmm. in the city if you've ever been there.
3: Uh don't think so.
1: It's uh, Michael Carlson,
3: okay.
1: I think, is the chef. Um, speaking of like somebody that just wants to do him yeah uh, he does this restaurant and it's his way and there's no if and or buts about it Like he'll just shut the restaurant down if he's you know tired or hungover mm-hmm. and you know it's there's no servers you get served by the chefs mm-hmm. and it's like heavy metal music playing and it's loud and it's you know everybody's taking shots of uh, whiskey and you bring a bottle for the kitchen so there's stuff like that that you just can't Like, you can't.
2: The food's great, but that, depending on who you're sitting with and who else is in the restaurant, too. Because Schwa seats 20. Maybe. Maybe. So, you know, you've got one night a certain group of people that are in there, the next night, you know, it'd be pretty easy for, like, a birthday party or some larger group to take over half the restaurant. All of a sudden, it's going to completely change the dynamic in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just, I mean,
1: honestly, like, the whole experience. Like, our our, uh, chef was so drunk. At one point, that he kept bringing us the same dish, so we ended up having like sixteen courses. We were only supposed to have twelve, and it happened to be this like terrine dish that was incredible. So we're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, bring you know bring it on." Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that too because like then you have other experiences like Danielle in New York, which Baloo, um, yeah. So his like his main main you know namesake restaurant. Eh,
3: it's okay. Is a three star Michelin. I food? think it's only two. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, but, it, but it's up there in terms of... Yeah, and
1: it's just like one of those, like, you're yeah. going and you're going to have this most amazing thing, and right. it's just like, it's it's everything. Certainly when you get to that caliber restaurant. Yeah. So, and that was mediocre at best. Yeah. I mean, the food was great, but the experience was never.
2: Favorite, like, yeah, favorite meal consistently. Fat rice is great. Um, one meal that really stands out. I couldn't tell you the name of the restaurant. I can't even tell you the town that it's in. Was in Italy somewhere a few years ago. We we're just like driving through the countryside, have dinner, and stopped in this little town to have dinner. And it was in a like a monastery at the top of the hill. You go up there, and you're like sitting in this courtyard. And this guy came out, and he was just like, "This is what we're serving tonight." And there was no menu or whatever. It was just the what was fresh, what they it was like porcini mushrooms and you know, just this amazing stuff. And just brought the food out and delicious pasta, but the atmosphere is great. you're overlooking this beautiful city and you know the guy who owned the restaurant, who runs the restaurant was the one who took our order, was the one who was cooking, was the one who brought our food out. It just was beautiful.